Hey, uh, let's get right to it. Hosea, the book of Hosea. Why don't you turn there with me at this time? Uh, our Sunday morning text we draw from our upcoming Wednesday night through the Bible study. So we do that on Wednesday. And Lord willing, we're gonna finish this book uh, Wednesday night. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and, um, and so we're gonna do the old look at the last chapter before you finish the book thing. Uh, because you don't want to miss, you, this, just, if you're just a Sunday morning for, person and you don't really catch up on our Wednesday nights, I really want you to see kind of the Lord's heart at the end of this book. And so turn with me to Hosea chapter 14. I'd like to begin with a poem called The Race. It goes like this. Quit, give up, you're beaten, they shout at me and plead. There's just too much against you now, this time you can't succeed. As I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall the scene, for just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well, excitement, sure, but also fear, it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up, so full of hope, each thought to win that race or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. The fathers watched from off the side, each cheering on for his son, and each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they went, young hearts and hopes afire. To win and be the hero there was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as they speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace and mid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he went and with him hope. He couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he did, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose and no damage done, a bit behind, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs and he slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace, I'm hopeless as a runner now, I shouldn't even try to race. But in the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face, that steady look which said again, get up and win the race. So up he jumped to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm going to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to move real fast. Exerting everything he had, he regained his eight or 10, but trying to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. He lied there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out, why try? The will to rise had disappeared, all hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone, a loser all the way. I've lost, so, that's what, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will to get up, it said, you haven't lost it all. For winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. 
So up he rose to run once more and with new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he'd never quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again, too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the very end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you'd have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do too well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win the race. Now I know what some of you are thinking about that poem. Kid's a loser. <laughs> oh, not all of you. Some of you are of compassion. Oh, the poor kid, he fell down. Oh, and he, he got up and he ran. And some people have a warm heart for that. But I've noticed some of you are more competitive. And, and I like that too. You know, some of you are out there, you're, you're not the touchy-feely type. You're like, you know, second place is just first place for losers. <laughs> let alone being at last place. You know, some of you are like that. Um, <laughs> nobody remembers the second place. Um, but you know, what's interesting, um, the, the race of life is very much like that. We tend to fall down. And the question is, are you willing to get up again and run the race? Because many people throughout the centuries have just fallen down enough to where they just kind of stay in the dirt and they don't get back up. And in the human race, this race we live, actually uh, we're living as just people, it is in fact a race. The Bible even tells us that. And Paul the apostle mentions that, by the way, in 2 Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice he didn't say he won the race in this case. He says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen, I love this part. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That means the people who love his appearing. His appearing? Well, that's when Jesus was, um, you know, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus born in, in Bethlehem, raised, lived, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave and ascended in heaven. That was his first appearing. And those who love that because they know what it means. Well, the Lord says for all those who are running this race, man, the Lord will give you a, a crown of righteousness. That's, there's a reward that's gonna be given to those who run the race. Paul says he runs the race to win the prize in another scripture. Um, there's a prize given to people who finish this race we call life. But the problem is here in Hosea chapter 14 is the children of Israel are in a place where you and I can learn some valuable lessons. And, and sadly, Israel here, the Northern 10 tribes at least, because um, you know, they've been a divided kingdom now for centuries as we've been reading this story in Hosea's time, they're the example of what not to do. They're the example of the people who had fallen down over and over in their sin. 
and they'd been stuck in the mire of their ugliness and horrible behaviors. And they were hurting and messed up because of their sins. The repercussions of their own sins had caught up with them. And the Lord now is pleading, uh, saying, listen, pleading with them, saying, listen, I wanna fix this. I wanna help you. If we kind of summarize Hosea, chapters one through three, we saw this beautiful picture of God's love for Israel and, and, and Israel's horrible behavior. Pictured in Gomer the prostitute, Hosea married Gomer, Hosea the prophet married this prostitute woman. They had three children, but she just kept prostituting herself. She kept, you know, uh, sleeping around town and everybody's like, that's Hosea the prophet's wife. There she is sleeping at Bill's house and then Bob's house and then Tom's house and just all around, all around town. And what a humiliation, but the Lord would say to Israel, even as Gomer is unfaithful to the prophet Hosea, so Israel, you have been unfaithful to me. It's a picture. And the Jews said, yeah, whatever. But then they watched this story unfold as Hosea found Gomer, his wife, getting more and more messed up by her sin. She ends up being old and haggardly and messed up and nobody wanted her anymore. And she was in debt. So she finds herself on the slave market there in Israel. And God says, Hosea, she's lost. Nobody wants her. She's just this messed up, washed up, has been sinner. But Hosea, I want you to go and purchase her off the slave block. And so Hosea the prophet goes and purchases his adulterous wife and loves her and brings her back. And the Lord says, even as Hosea has done this, Israel, I want to redeem you. I want to purchase you out of your sinful error. And I wanna bless you. And, and that illustration was seen in chapters one through three. Chapters four through 10, we saw, the indictment against Israel. It was like the courtroom scene, the prosecuting attorney saying, you have done all of these things. And it's kind of this long dirge of the evils of the behaviors of the children of Israel. But in chapter 11, as we will see on Wednesday night, 12 and 13, even 14, we're gonna see the Lord's redeeming love. Even though Israel doesn't deserve it, even though Israel hasn't done anything to earn it, even though if you or I look at Israel, I think, man, Lord, just let them go. They don't deserve one good thing but God's love is amazing. And that's what we see. And we see the Lord's heart here in chapter 14 of what the children of Israel, not only what they need to do to fix their fallen state where they need to get up from it. The Lord's saying, you've fallen Israel, it's time to get up and here's what you're gonna do. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, you're gonna end up toast. And see, that's the, that's the bummer of this story. We know how this story ends. The Jews are gonna blow off chapter 14 of Hosea, the prophet. They say, yeah, whatever. And they're gonna get crushed by Tiglath-Pilaser, the Assyrian army, a monstrous, horrifying army that had been crushing through the land. Israel, the Northern 10 tribes, they're next on the list of things to do for Tiglath-Pilaser. And in 722 uh, BC, pardon me, 722 is when they came and crushed Israel. Why? Because Israel rejected God and they wouldn't turn to him. They were stubborn in their way. So sad it is today, there are people today that are still stubborn against God. Well, if God is love, he won't destroy us. That's correct. God is love and he wants to save you from destruction. But you need to want to be saved from that destruction. So what do you do? Well, that's where Hosea chapter 14 comes into play. Let's take a look, Hosea 14, starting in verse one. There it says, O Israel, Return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen in by thine iniquity. 
This is the, the pleading of the Lord. Look at chapter 13, go backwards a little bit there, rewind into chapter 13, verse nine. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. This is the Lord saying, I wanna help you. Israel's at that place. Remember the commercial back in the old days? I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> That's the fallen sinner. And sometimes you can fall in your sin and you really can't do it. You are stuck like a turtle on its back in your sin. And you're wondering, why am I down here? But the Lord says, turn to me, Israel. Um, I love that. Return is another way of saying repent. Repent in the Bible means to do an about face and go the opposite direction. Israel had been marching away from God for centuries. In fact, the Northern 10 tribes, when they split during the reign of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they split you know, centuries earlier. And in the Northern 10 kingdom there, um, it never once had a godly king. They were all pagans, worshiping pagan deities. Not one time. The Southern two tribes, they had about half of their kings were good. Hezekiah and Josiah. There were a few good ones, um, of course. But really the Northern 10 tribes, they had nothing but evil going on. But by the time... Hosea comes around and their, their doom is very close. They don't even realize that they're just stuck in the mud, fallen in their sinful iniquity. And that's what the Lord's saying in verse one. And so we're gonna break this chapter up into five chunks. And, uh, and the first chunk is we need to see the need, the need for Israel to return to the Lord, the need for them to get up again and go back to the Lord. And by the way, whenever historically the Jews would return to the Lord, you always would find the Lord in a very quick posture to receive them back. You say, well, good for Israel. Well, do you understand the Old Testament, these stories are amazing illustrations of what God wants to do for you. Even as you find yourself in sinful situations and sometimes fallen down and the Lord would say, get up and return to me and I will, I will heal you and, and save you and forgive you and bless you. Um, but as it turns out, most people don't see their need until sometimes it's too late. So here they're, they're getting this final warning in chapter 14, see the need, then acknowledge the need and then get up. How long does it take for a nation? How long does it take for a person to see your need to repent of your sins? I wonder how long was it that the, that the prodigal son sat in the pig pen? How long? We don't really know how long he was there, but it was long enough to make him sit there and go, what in the world am I doing? If you remember the story there in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, we see the story where the, the prodigal says, dad, give me your money. I want the inheritance now. And the father gives him the money. He goes off to a far away land and parties down with all his buddies. There they are in some far land, busting a move and everybody's spending his money and it's all wonderful until he runs out of money and his friends bail. Now he's stuck with nothing. And instead of going back home repentant, he says, whatever. And he gets a job slopping pigs. Not a good thing for a Jewish boy to be doing, slopping pigs, not a fun job. But he found his stomach growling and he was hungry. So he started eating the, own, the pig slop. And there he is sitting in the pig slop with the pigs, stinking like the pigs. And he's just sitting there. We don't know how long he does this, but it's long enough to where he sits there and finally says, man, my father's servants have it better than I do. Maybe if I go home, he says, and I tell my dad, dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you please at least make me as one of your servants? Well, what happened is he's finally, he repents. 
And he gets out of the pig pen and he makes the long journey home. And I love the picture because the father, what's he doing? Standing on the doorstep with his foot tapping, arms crossed, loser son. Is that what he's doing? No, the Bible says while the son was still afar off, the father was watching. And when the father saw his son, he ran out, hugged him and kissed him and put a robe on him and put a ring on his finger and killed the fatted calf and said, we're gonna have a big feast because my son who was lost has now been found. That's the heart of the Lord. How long do we sit in the pig pen? There's a part of human nature that's really weird. And, and I hope you understand this. We wanna, we wanna just take in the stench just for a little longer. We wanna just sit there and wallow. What is it about us, that human nature, that wants to kinda, oh, I'll get out of this horrible situation, uh, but later, maybe, maybe next week. Why procrastinate today when you can procrastinate tomorrow? Uh, it's almost New Year's Eve. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just party down here the rest of December and then January 1st, I'll turn over a new leaf. And then January 2nd, you're like, uh, we'll go with through 2023 maybe instead. <laughs> like what is it in human nature that just wants to wallow in the pig pen? Or remember the story, uh, it's kind of a, a crazy story in Exodus chapter eight where um, you know, the plagues of Egypt, God was getting his people you know, to be freed from of Egypt as slaves. And Moses you know, said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so the Lord, one of the plagues was the plague of frogs. And if you don't know that, what that was like, it, it, the Bible says it was horrific. It got so bad, you know, they'd, they'd be walking down the street in their sandals and they'd have frog guts squishing between their toes. Frogs in the bed, frogs in their food, frogs everywhere. Now, when I was a kid growing up at the Applegate River, there was a, a week during summer where all the tadpoles became little tiny frogs. And man, if you were walking down by the river, you were guaranteed stepping on eight or 10 frogs on any given step. I remember millions of these frogs coming out of the river. Um, and they were just little ones. These were in Egypt were probably big old juicy frogs and they were squishing around and, and, and so many dead frogs. The Bible says they piled up these frogs in piles, the dead frogs, and, and the land began to stink horribly. Stinky land. And finally it got so bad, Pharaoh says, call in Moses. And so Moses comes in and he says, okay, Moses, get rid of the frogs and we'll let the people go. And Moses said, a funny thing Moses says, he says, when would you like me to pray that the frogs leave? And, and, and even funnier still, the answer of Pharaoh, he says, tomorrow. <laughs> huh? Man, if I'm Pharaoh and I've got all the stinky frogs, I'd be like, okay, Moses, let's go to our knees right now, shall we? Uh, let's pray. Come on, I'll help you. Uh, pray this, frogs away. Go ahead. Like, I'd be like, come on, let's do this now. But what is it that was in Pharaoh that said, I'd like to have one more night with the frogs. <laughs> one more night with the frogs. Hmm. That's human nature. One more night with the stench, one more night with our little sins, hang on to the stuff that's just totally messing us up. That's human nature. And that's the problem with Israel. And the Lord's saying, oh, Israel, turn to me, come to me and I'll help you up. You've fallen in your iniquities and I wanna help you get back up again. But Israel would not have it, sadly. Some people just don't wanna get up from their sins. So number one, see the need. Number two, confess our deeds. That's what you and I are called to do. We have to confess that we're sinners. And that's what we see the Lord telling Israel. Here's how you do this. Chapter 14, verse two. He says, take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So we will render the calves of our lips. Huh? 
the calves of our lips. I didn't know my lips had calves. Um, no, the idea is a sacrifice. Uh, when you bring a calf to the altar at the temple to sacrifice, it, it's, it's like what the uh, New King James Version kind of puts it a little easier. He says, you know, take these words with you and return to the Lord, say to him, take away, you know, all iniquity and receive us graciously for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. That's what he's saying. And there's a sacrifice you need to make of your lips of saying, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you, Lord. And ask him to take away all of the sins. That's what it says. You know, bring your words with you. And what are the words gonna say? Turn to the Lord and say, take away all my iniquities, all my sins. And then it'll be that sacrifice of your lips to do so. And for some of you, it is a sacrifice. Can I just say, in these days we're living, have you noticed, is it just me? But people are getting worse and worse when it comes to taking ownership for their bad behaviors. Like, it's really a funny thing. Uh, we, we, it's not our fault. Um, I'm the way I am because this happened, or we like to deflect and we like to superimpose our, you know, the things. And, and we've gotten horrible at it. Um, and it's not just the politicians. Um, you know, even, even you know, I didn't really pull the trigger. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting thing. I wonder what really went on there, but somebody was dead and, and I've, I've shot a lot of guns in my day and usually the trigger needs to be pulled for it to go off. Hmm, what's going on there? But you know, instead of just taking you know, extreme ownership, which is what the Lord is actually requiring of the people of Israel to own their sins and say, I have sinned against you, Lord. We just like say, well, you know, excuse me, Lord. It was, it was my, my bad, but it was really somebody else's fault. And we don't wanna just own our own sins. Um, <laughs> there was a, um, a funny sort of co compilation of, from the Toronto Sun newspaper printed uh, years ago, but I thought this was funny. Insurance, uh, you know, uh, uh, reports of accidents that people had with their vehicles. And here are some of the descriptions of what happened. This person said, a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. <laughs> I can actually see that happening in Portland, actually. Um, <laughs> maybe that's what happened. Um, here's a good one. Um, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. <laughs> here's one, somebody trying to superimpose the guilt to some other object. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. <laughs> it's all the telephone fool's fault. That's, that's actually very typical of the way we handle things. You know, it's amazing, you know, we, and it goes on and on. These, there's a, you know, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Or my car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. You know, it's like we wanna sort of shroud our guilt with, I was doing it really right. It wasn't really my fault. Um, but today, when we make, can you imagine if our politicians actually just owned the bad things that happen? I, I actually have a, an opinion that if, if politicians would just own, like boldly own, you know, like this, Afghanistan, our pullout was really a catastrophe and we misjudged the situation. We did not do what we needed to do. Like I believe if our generals and our commander in chief would just say boldly, man, this was a mistake. And the whole world knows it, but instead it was the most amazing pullout of any withdrawal of any time in the world's history. It was an incredible success. Um, that's the way it's being touted today. 
But, but, but sadly, it's not just the commander in chief or the generals of the US military, it's all of us. We, we tend, and it's, we're getting better and better at it in our wacko culture to say, it's not really my fault. But the Bible says, you gotta confess your deeds to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned. Like when David committed adultery and murdered Uriah the Hittite, like that's a bad set of sins there. When Nathan the prophet calls out King David and David, he acknowledges this as I have sinned against the Lord this day. David had to acknowledge his sin before the Lord. And Psalm 32 is interesting because it explains how he felt when he covered up his sin and didn't admit it. It says the Lord's hand was heavy upon me and, it, and my bones waxed old all the day long. He was feeling like a little old man and crushed under the weight. But he says, but then when I confessed my sin to the Lord, there when he said to Nathan, I have sinned, then the Lord lifted that weight. And he said, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. That's what the Lord is asking Israel to do to confess their deeds and say, we have sinned against the Lord. That's what the Lord requires. So number one, you need to see the need. Number two, you need to confess your deeds. But then verse three, we see the next one. We need to be willing to concede. What's that? The word concede, well, it's, it's kind of an interesting word that uh, it just means to relinquish the physical control of something to another, to surrender your life to whatever you're conceding to. We need to concede to the Lord and surrender our life back to the Lord. That's, that's what the Bible tells us. So where do we see that? It's in verse three. He says, Asher shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in thee the fatherless find mercy. What's the Lord saying in verse three? The Lord's saying, Israel, listen, don't say this stuff. You will not say anymore, the Assyrians will help us. You will not say, we will ride on horses and they will save us. You will not say, these little idols we've made with our hands, they're not gonna help the orphan. Because that's what they were saying. Israel had been saying that for centuries, stuff like that. By the way, you say, what does the tribe of Asher have to do anything with verse three here? As it turns out, during the time of Hosea, if you wanted to find the toughest, buffest of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the one you didn't wanna mess with was the tribe of Asher. They were sort of the Navy SEAL Team Six tribe. They were armed to the teeth. They were well-trained soldiers. And so they're saying, we have Asher. <laughs> but historically, we know that Asher was a tough tribe, but compared to the Assyrian army, they were pipsqueaks. The Assyrian was this massive, fearful army that would come crushing through there and basically shoo the, fly of Asher, the tribe of Asher like a fly on the wall, seriously. But the Jews were saying, but we have the tribe of Asher. They were leaning on their own little tribe to help them when the Lord says, stop saying we've got Asher. Stop saying, you know, we can do this by riding horses. That's what they did in Isaiah chapter 30. Hey, we'll, we'll align ourselves with the Egyptians and we'll ride their horses into battle. And the Lord, if you read Isaiah 30, the Lord says, woe unto the rebellious children of Israel for they take counsel of men and not of God. And they align themselves with the Egyptians. It's a type of the world, the world in its system. And, and, they, and, they, and they said, yeah, but we'll ride horses. And the Lord says, you will ride horses there in Isaiah 30, but your horses are slower than their horses and you're gonna be crushed. Yeah, yeah, Lord, but we'll shoot our bows and arrows. And the Lord says, you will shoot your bows and arrows, but you're gonna miss your target and your en enemies are gonna be dead on. 
And by the way, in Isaiah 30, when he gave that word, the children of Israel did repent and said, okay, forget the horses, forget Egypt, and let's go back to the Lord. They did, for a short while, they repented there. But here in Hosea, say, you know, he's saying, stop trusting in Asher, stop saying we will ride horses, and stop trusting in your goofy little handmade idols that you worship. You gotta be willing to let go of those things you're putting your trust in. What is it that you and I put our trust in when we're in trouble or depressed or going in those moments of being down because of our, our sins? What are the things that you and I turn to um, for comfort or for you know, our help? For some of you, it's your counselor rather than the Lord. For some of you, it's not a counselor, maybe it's friends. For, for others of you, maybe it's a bottle that you hide around the house that you don't want anybody to know it's there, but it's that, that bottle where when you feel bummed, you just kind of have this knee jerk to go and get a nice drink. Maybe you're not into that. Maybe it's those M&Ms you hide around the house so that nobody knows the bag of M&Ms, those little magical colorful pills you take of joy. Brett, it sounds like you know more about that one. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's not M&Ms. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's that emergency joint that you saved. How, Brett, how do you know about emergency? Years ago, a good brother in our church here was when smoking pot was illegal. He, uh, he was trying to quit smoking pot because he smoked a lot of pot and his life was being ruined because of it. And it was very clear. And so he was like, oh, you gotta help me, Brad, I gotta stop. And so we prayed and worked and talked and we went through some scripture and stuff. Well, one of our meetings, he came and said, Brad, I got rid of all my weed, man. I flushed it all down the toilet. And I, I gotta say, um, I was initially like, oh, that's so good, I'm so glad. But then the Lord just put it on my heart and I don't get this very often, but the Lord kind of clearly said, he didn't get rid of all of it. That's what the Lord told me. So I said, bro, I said, are you sure you got rid of all it? Because I don't know that you really did. And he's like, oh man, that's what he said, <laughs> just like that. And he said, okay, okay. He said, I saved one joint, uh, my, my emergency joint. And he even told me where he hid it, on the mantle behind the little decoration thing. Uh, there was his little emergency joint that he kept just in case. That's, that's what he said. And man, we had to have that hard talk, buddy. You, you gotta relinquish. You gotta be willing to concede to the Lord and say, I'm gonna dump all this. I'm gonna really repent not leave the room for the little emergency joint, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's something that we're all called to do. You have to be willing to concede. And the, the problem is, you know, it depends on what you're putting your trust in. I like the psalmist where he says in Psalm 27, 20 verse seven, some trust in chariots, others in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That was the problem of Israel. They were trusting in their worldly alliances. They were trusting in their worldly weapons and their worldly possessions in their personal skills and all that. And the Lord says, dump that stuff and put your trust in me. Cling to, to the Lord and put your trust in him. And, and so we cling to our little things, whether it's the bottle or the emergency joint or the password that you don't let your wife have for the computer because you're worried that she's gonna find out that your little thing that you go to is, is a whole nother thing that makes the dopamine levels rise. You know, the whole pornography thing is something that I think a lot of people go to because they're struggling, not just with the sin of pornography, but with the rest of life. And they're going to that for a, a short-term sort of salvation to their problem, but it only ends up destroying. So that's the problem. We need to you know, see the need here in verse one. 
We need to confess our deeds and be honest and, and have extreme ownership and say, Lord, I have sinned against you in these areas. And then you gotta relinquish and be willing to concede, number three. Number four on the list, we need to then, this is where it gets really nice, realize that once you've done those things, realize that you've been freed. Man, you can get up and now you can run again. You can go with life because the Lord forgives you and he forgives you big time. Um, how does the Lord forgive us and what does he do? Well, let's read. It's really the section of realize you've been freed is chapter 14, verses four through eight. It says in verse four there, it says, I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree, from me is thy fruit found. Here the Lord gives this beautiful uh, I will. Once a person repents of their sin, confesses and relinquishes and lets go of all the junk and stands back up again and starts to walk with the Lord, the Lord says, here's what I'm gonna do. Let's break it down. He says four main things that he's gonna do once you turn and repent to the Lord. What will he do? Number one, he says, I will heal their backsliding. Backsliding is the word we Christians know as we read the Bible as being the person who maybe once was saved and walking with the Lord and doing well, but in their, you know, just life, they start kind of taking hold of sinful things a little bit more and getting into old habits and doing old sinful things. And, and pretty soon their sin, they, it causes kind of a separation once again from God. Uh, you know, and people argue, can you lose your salvation once they've always saved and you know, eternal security and all this stuff. And people get all up in a tizzy on that. And I'm not here to argue one way or other on that one right now. But I will say when you're in a backslidden state, you don't feel very saved. You can find yourself still stuck in the mud in the pig pen, even though you once confessed Christ. Uh, the way of the transgressor, whether you're, whether you're saved or not, uh, the way of the transgressor, the Bible says is hard. So when you're in that backslidden state, it often causes wounds. And you know what? There's people in this room who could say, I've been in that state because of alcohol or pornography or adultery. I've been in that backslidden state because of sins that have ruined things and hurt me and hurt my family and hurt my marriage and, and my job. And, and there's people that can say, man, I, I, I was wounded. But there's also people in here who can say, but when I return to the Lord, oh, there's still hurts and there's still wounds, but the Lord has healed those wounds. And there's still a few scars, but, but the Lord heals your backsliding. He can, he, like, the, like the prophet Joel says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. That's what the Lord does. Don't you love God who just says, I'll heal your backsliding. You don't deserve healing from backsliding. You're the one who backslid. You're the one who took up those sinful things, but the Lord says, you know what? I just, I love you so much. I just, I'll heal you if, if you just return to me. Um, man, so many people think God's mad at them and if they try to come back to the Lord, the Lord will reject you. Nope, 
the true repentant sinner, if they come to the Lord and with extreme ownership confess their sins, the Lord says, guess what? I will heal your backsliding. Number two, this is powerful. I will love them freely, he says in verse four. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. God's love is free. He loves you um, and you don't need to deserve it. You don't need to earn it. He just does love you. God is love. We talked about agape love just a few weeks ago and that's what the Lord does. He loves you that much. Um, I always like to talk about Charles Spurgeon probably too much lately, but um, I'm reading a lot of his sermons right now and there's so many good things, but he did a whole sermon on this little phrase from you know, uh, Hosea chapter 14, verse four. And he does just the phrase, I will love them freely, the Lord says. And he does, does this whole powerful sermon on the free love that God gives. But let me just read a little excerpt of this. It's so good. Spurgeon said in 1855, he said, when God says, I will love them freely, he means that no prayers, no tears, no good works, no giving of alms to the poor, none of them are an inducement to God loving men. Not only nothing in themselves, but nothing anywhere else was the cause of God's love for humanity. Not even the blood of Christ not even the groans and the tears of his beloved son on the cross. These are the fruits of his love, not the cause of it. He does not love because Christ died, but Christ died on the cross because the father loved. Remember that this fountain of love has its spring in and of itself, not in you, nor in me, but only in the father's own gracious, infinite heart of goodness. Man, that's so good. It's true, the Lord is this beautiful fountain of love. And you and I, we can walk away from that fountain and end up in the pig pen or have one more night with the frogs. Or we can position ourselves and get out of there and stand up and walk and repent and position ourselves under the spout where the blessings come out. That's God, he's the fountain of this free love that he wants to give. It's there bubbling over for anyone who wants it. But humanity, stubborn as we are, we still wanna wallow in our sins and we miss this love that God says, I will give this to you freely. Can you even imagine for a second God saying, I will heal your backsliding in Israel. I will give you my love to you freely. And then the nation just blowing, them off, blowing God off. Can you even imagine that? That's what they did. That's human nature. Number three on this list that he says in verse four, and I will turn away uh, my anger. This is a part that a lot of Christianity leaves out or forgets that anger is part of the equation. God is love, yes. And people say, well, God is love that he won't judge the world. That's, that's just totally misinformed because love is also righteous and God is righteous. And he demands righteousness and apart from righteousness, he pours out his wrath. God has anger toward those that have sinned. And that's, it's, it's not an unrighteous anger like your and my anger. It's a, it's a righteous, holy anger. There is a thing that is righteous anger. And the Bible tells us that's what God has. You say, well, that's scary, but that's the whole point of Jesus on the cross. The wrath that you and I deserve. God didn't just wink at your sin and say, oh, I forgive you, just whatever. I'll just kind of blow that off. He doesn't do that. God says, I will come to this world, God with us, Emmanuel. Christ, born in Bethlehem, was God with us. God came, visited us, lived among us. Jesus came, grew up, lived a life of perfection without sin, and then he went to the cross where God's wrath for your sins and mine were put upon him, himself. 
He bore our sins and he took upon himself our iniquities. And so God didn't just wink at your sin. The wrath that was meant for you, he put on the cross of Christ. And that's why that whole thing had to take place. God is righteous. But how does he turn away his anger from you? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Apart from the cross, you and I would deserve everything that God would give us as far as wrath goes. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Anyone who repents of their sins and confesses their faith in Christ and just dumps the, the stuff and says, I'm gonna turn to the Lord. The Lord says, I will heal your backsliding. I will love you freely and I will turn away my anger from you. These are some great things. But just to put the icing on the cake, number four, things the Lord will do. I will make your life Israel or Athe Creeker. I will make your life fruitful and fragrant. That's really the summary of what he says in verses five um, through eight. He says, I will make your life fruitful and fragrant. How does he say that? Well, you have to understand, again, this is hard for us to understand because when you and I think of Lebanon, we think of bombs and gunpowder and um, destruction and stuff. But do you understand Lebanon, what a sad story Lebanon is. The Hezbollah funded by the Iranians, they have ruined one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Lebanon, 50 years ago, they called it the you know, Riviera, uh, Riviera of, the, of the Middle East. It was beautiful. Um, but it's become this deathly, horrible, um, blown up area. Now, the reason I say that is because the Lord talks about Lebanon a bunch in this little uh, part of the, he says, you're gonna have the fragrances of Lebanon. What were the fragrances of Lebanon back in Bible days? Well, they were famous for their beautiful giant cedar trees of Lebanon. And, um, and the fragrance of the cedar trees. Have you ever smelled like freshly cut cedar? Oh, I mean, there's few natural smells that are, you know, some of you put cedar hangers in your closet uh, because it makes uh, uh, your clothes and everything smell nice and keeps the moths away. But all that to say the cedars of Lebanon, the Lord says here in, in the verse, he says, his branches shall spread, his beauty shall be seen as the olive tree and the smell as of Lebanon. And then he not only talks about the cedars and the smell, but also the wine as they had the rolling vineyards in Lebanon. It says there in verse eight, Ephraim shall say, uh, pardon me, verse uh, seven, they that dwell under his shadow shall return and receive as the corn, so fruitfulness, and grow as the vine and the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. That was something, that was like a saying. The wine of Lebanon was something that was a, a, an aroma. that was a beautiful thing. The Lord saying, I will make your, your nation once again, you stink right now because you're sin, but I will make you clean and I will wash you and you'll, you'll have the fragrance of Lebanon, the wine of Lebanon, and you'll be fruitful with corn. That's what the Lord's saying. You see, some of us, we stay in the dirt and on the ground and we don't get up again because we can't imagine ever being fruitful and blessed again. Once you really stink in sin, you'll think, well, I always really stink in sin. But the Lord's saying, no, if you confess and repent and turn to me, I'll pick you up and dust you off and wash you and cleanse you. And you'll be, you know, you'll be clean, no longer the stench of sin, but I'll make you the fragrant beauty of what I wanna do for you. The Bible says, Ecclesiastes says, the Lord makes all things beautiful in what? In his time, in his time, he does that. So you've got the fragrance and the fruitfulness, but then you have the final thing. Um, and as we break it down, um, we got number one, we see the need. Number two, confess the deeds. Number three, be willing to concede. And then, then realize that you've been freed. 
Once, the Lord, once you do those things, the Lord will free up. But then there's one final thing in verse nine, and that is this, a reminder to take heed. Listen up. He says in verse nine, who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. The wise, prudent person will do what the Lord says here in verse four, chapter 14. But the stupid person, the transgressors just keep falling in their sins and just keep doing it. We start with fallen Israel in verse one, and we end with a cautionary word, a reminder to take heed that the transgressors will continue to fall in their sins unless they repent. And this is a good reminder, you know, of course, for Israel that they did not listen to, but it's also a good reminder for you and for me. Because man, the enemy's working overtime to try to get you and me stuck in the mud, the pig pen, to have one more night with the frogs and, and just to stay in our fallen sinful state. But the Lord says, oh, I wanna bless you and I wanna pick you up and I wanna get you dusted off and running again. And like the little poem that I started out with, you almost hear the Father in heaven saying, get up, let's go. I wanna do great things in you. The question is, are you gonna get up or are you just gonna stay down like so many people? You can do life the easy way or you can do life the hard way. I would recommend the easy way. Turn to the Lord, follow his word, repent of your sins, extreme ownership of your sins. Just own it and say, Lord, I have sinned against you and then relinquish control of your life back to the Lord and he'll make your life fruitful and fragrant. That's what the Lord promises. This story is for the Jews, but it's also for you and me, a good reminder today. Amen. Would you bow your heads please with me? Lord, how thankful we are for so great a salvation, that you love us. We read the story in this book of Hosea and, and we see the, just the children of Israel so messed up and lost. And, and yet Lord, we, we also see that same tendency in our own lives to fall down in the mire and get stuck in the mud. But I pray you'd find a congregation that gets up over and over again that Lord, you would just forgive us of our sins and that we'd be repentant and change and be transformed, Lord. Help us with that. 